listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. There's something about this Jesus. H.G. Wells, who is uh, often known as the father of science and the father of fiction, uh, speaks to Jesus. He's written uh, War of the Worlds, The Invisible Man. This is what he said in the early 1900s. He said, an historian like myself, who doesn't even call himself a Christian, finds the picture of centering irresistibly around the life and character of this most significant man. Speaking of Jesus. The historian's test of an individual's greatness by asking this question, what did he leave to grow? Did he start men to thinking along fresh lines with a vigor that persisted after him? By this text, Jesus stands first. This is not a man who believed Jesus to be king, lord, son of God, son of man. When we read this, we think, well, he's son of God, son of man. Of course, the world is oriented around him. He lived 33 years in the flesh. And H.G. Wells, a man who did not profess Christ, was left to confess and profess that there's something about this Jesus that has set the tone and the turn of the world, specifically the Western world. And again, we say because he's son of God, son of, son of man, of course, this is the case. But H.D. Wells just saw him as Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter who was a rabbi, Jewish teacher who only lived 33 years, and yet he took stock and made the statement. Yale historian Jaroslav Pelikan said this, Regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of supermagnet to pull up out of the history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? Jesus only lived 33 years on this earth. Yet the impact of his life and claims have literally marked time and determined the way we see time. B.C. meaning before Christ, A.D. meaning Anno Domini, which literally means the year of the Lord become designations for how we arrive at our understanding of a calendar. It set the tone for the Julian and Gregorian calendar. We we follow primarily the Gregorian calendar. And 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 this whole idea is based on the era of Jesus' birth and his death. Many empires have tried to set the calendar based upon their empirical success. Empires. Even the Soviet Union. None has been able to trump the reality that Jesus' life has left such an impact that he becomes the measuring stick for our calendar. And that happened all in about 525 A.D. Jesus never wrote a book. Yet his teaching that one should love God with all one's mind would lead a community of his followers to do something most amazing. In the Dark Ages, known as the Middle Ages, when classical culture was trumped with an entirely different kind of culture, academia was all but lost. And so Jesus' followers, believing that Jesus pursued truth and called his followers to help others find truth, took it upon themselves to preserve the greatest academic works in the history of culture. They found and preserved them in established libraries. And the the way they preserved many of these books is that they copied them with their own two hands, these monks. And these libraries became learning institutions. And these learning institutions gave birth to the Western world's mentality of universities. 
Universities arise such as William and Mary, Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Yale, all because Jesus' followers believed that Jesus valued education for all. Jesus never held a political office or led an army. Yet he said that he was the king of the kingdom that did not originate of this world. And he often found himself on the wrong side of the law, both in his life and in his death. Yet this movement of Jesus, called Christ followers of Christianity, would eventually lead to the end of emperor worship in the West. And many of his teachings would become cited in the Western world's most significant documents, such as the Magna Carta, the Constitution would form what we know as common law and help establish what we experience in our modern society as our legal justice system. Jesus never went to medical school or led a triage. Yet his teaching that one should love your neighbor as yourself began to change a culture where the disabled and the sick and the diseased were simply written off or left to die. During the Black Plague, it was his people who noticed that the Roman government was taking care of itself and the wealthy while leaving the poor and middle class to die. And so Jesus' followers decided that if he believed that one should love neighbor as self, that they should do something about this. And so they started creating relief work efforts and hospices that once the Roman government saw what they were doing, caught wind, thought it was a great idea, decided to fund it. And that became what we know as hospitals. Hospitals are a Christian idea. Jesus once said, let the little children come to me. In the days preceding and during his life, children were considered weak, full of fear, helpless. And before Jesus and during his life were considered at best pitiable aggravations. Plato once described children as this, a mob of motley appetites, pains, and pleasures. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Jesus loved children in such a way that it changed the world. See, in the Roman Empire, the world regime in which Jesus lived, many babies did not grow up at all. In the ancient world, unwanted babies were left to die through a legal practice called exposure. Exposure was where the head of the household had the legal right to decide the life or death of every family member. And this was usually decided within the first eight days of the birth of a child. An decision was made largely by the head of the family, and it was a part of the law of Romulus in Rome. Now, the most common reasons for exposure in Roman culture were, were somewhat obvious, poverty. But then there were other reasons, such as If a family did not want their estate to be divided up by too many people, they could leave one child to exposure to die. Or if the child was born deformed or disabled, they would indeed leave the child left to exposure. Or if the child was of the wrong gender. Because one of the other things that the law of Romulus of Rome stated was that any baby basically was disposable. It was very specific, the law of Romulus of Rome. The specificity of this law was that a father was required to raise all healthy male children and only the first born female. But any other female or deformed child, but especially females, could be disposed of through this process called exposure, which is to leave them there to die 
or to have them killed. So Jews were obviously repulsed of this idea. And so they were repulsed of this practice of exposure so much that they decided to do something about it. And instead of embracing the practice of exposure themselves because of the non-Jewish culture of the day and frankly the stubbornness of heart of the Jews for God, what they would do with children who were born out of a forbidden relationship or unwanted children was that they would simply leave them at a dump or a dunghill. If you do not know what a dunghill is without trying to be as crass as possible, it's just a hill where animals went or where animal feces were piled. And so the Jews would take their unwanted babies and leave them there to die on the dump or the dung hill. If they were rescued, these babies, and some were, they were orphaned or they were taken as slaves. And this happens so much that when you look at ancient history and you look at the names written in the pages of the Western history world, or the Western world of history, particularly ancient West, you find that many of the names of lots of, many of the names of, of many people, both men and women, but mostly men, are named of different variations of kropos, which is the Greek word for dung. Now please don't misunderstand me. Ancient Western parents were as compassionate and as loving as, as we are on so many different levels. They lived in an entirely different culture, one that repulses many of us to think of these things. But see, there's a truth. The truth is, back in Jesus' day and in ancient Rome, a child's worth was determined only by his or her value to the state, only by his or her value to the government, which is why women were largely devalued, because they had no contribution to the government and to the state, only the men. Certainly not a deformed or disabled child, sickly child, only the men, only the healthy ones. So much so that there was about 140 men to every 100 women, according to historians. The world was full of orphans and was sorely lacking in females. And just to demonstrate this, there's a first century letter written by a husband who was a Roman soldier. Listen to what he says to his pregnant wife. I ask and beg of you to take good care of our baby son. If you're delivered of a child before I come home, if it is a boy, keep it. A girl, discard it. This was culture. So much so that a Greek poet in the third century named Pacipitus once said, Everyone raises even a son, even if he is poor, but exposes a daughter, even if he is rich. So you live in a culture that devalued children in general, but you also find that Jesus lived in a culture that radically devalued women. So these babies that grew up to become women in the Greco-Roman world would grow up in a world generally set against them. They would be generally shut off from education and shut off from vocation and shut off from public life. So some grew up to be slaves, and the ones who were needed for their labor were regarded still as inferior. And though some of these views still are held in the East, in the West, and even some in the West, you have to see in our modern world how this has radically changed in the West. And the reason is Jesus. How he lived, how he loved. Because Jesus' love for children and for females, for women, the marginalized one, rewrote the story of their future. As the ancient world began to become filled with orphans, 
The followers of Jesus looked around and saw this ought not be so because Jesus once said, you must take care of the least of these. And so the followers of Jesus decided to collect money. And in collecting their money, they would find these orphans and they would begin to take care of them. In the late 4th century, a Christian emperor finally outlawed the practice of exposure in Rome, which then affected the entire Western world. And over time, instead of leaving these babies on dung hills or at dumps, people began to leave them at monasteries and cathedrals. And that gave birth to something we call now orphanages. So you drive by a hospital, an orphanage, William and Mary, And even H.G. Wells would say that was Jesus' followers' idea, all because of Jesus, regardless of what one may think of him and his divinity. One cannot argue his mark on the world. So these babies that grew up and were allowed to grow up, particularly the female ones, would still grow up in a world set against them, where females were left with practically no rights and were seen as second-class human beings. And Jesus even changed the way the world sees women. And instead of giving you more facts and figures, I would rather just tell you a story. If you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, beginning verse 1. When Jesus knew that the Pharisees heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. It was quite the Jewish icon, Jacob's well. And Jesus, worn out from his journey, interesting fact, sat down at the well. It's about noontime. Some of your translations may say it was six in the evening or some may say sixth hour. The literal translation is it was the sixth hour. That would make it noontime. Verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her. For his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him. Samaritan was her ethnicity. She says this, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. There's a reason why the Jews didn't associate with Samaritans. Samaritans were considered half-breed Jews. Because earlier in the history of Jewish people's lives, the Samaritans living near the Jewish people began to marry some of the poor Jewish people. And they began to sort of bring their two religions together. And they became, for you Harry Potter fans, like muggles. They became sort of what they considered as half-breeds. So Samaritans were Jewish cousins, distant cousins. But the Jews hated the Samaritans because the Samaritans not only messed up their race by mixing with them, they also built what they thought was a rival temple on Mount Gerizim. And in this rival temple, the Samaritans created their own sort of religion that was based on Torah, based on the Old Testament scriptures, Genesis through Deuteronomy, except Samaritans did not buy all of it. They kind of picked and chose what they liked out of Genesis through Deuteronomy, developed a priesthood, mixed in all kinds of other religions, and considered themselves Yahweh-fearing people. Well, of course, that hacked the Jews off extremely. The Jews hated Samaritans, and Samaritans returned the favor. So imagine the Jewish, the Samaritan woman's shock when this Jewish 
Rabbi decided to ask her for a drink. So Jesus replies in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket, and the well here is deep. So where do you get this living water? You, you aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. The Samaritan woman, church, she knows the story. She's no fool. She has a theology. You'll see that even more in a moment. Jesus said, verse 13, Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again, ever. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, Give me this water so I won't get thirsty and come here to drink water. Go call your husband, Jesus says to her, and come back here. Her response, verse 17, I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said. For you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Verse 19, sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, yet you Jews say that the place of worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. Verse 23, but an hour is coming and is now here. And is now here. That the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father seeks such people to worship Him. Verse 24, God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will explain to us everything. See, she knew her theology. She knew that there was a Messiah coming. You could read this story and think the woman tried to do a shift of gears and change the subject when Jesus began to call out her personal life. But the beauty of Jesus is that he entertains that and engages her in a deep theological and personal and intimate discussion. Jesus doesn't call her out for trying to change the subject. Husbands. He engages the conversation. Verse 26, I am he, Jesus told her, the one speaking to you. Just then, his disciples arrived, and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want with her, Jesus? Why are you talking with her? Of course his disciples were amazed, because women were utterly devalued. And not only was she a woman, which was no, Jesus had no business really talking to her, because when a Jewish man of Jesus' stature would talk to a woman, there was usually one conclusion, that he was probably soliciting. But not only was he talking to a woman, he was talking to a Samaritan woman. Someone that certainly Jesus should not have been talking to. This is a cultural and social and religious no-no. And so, of course, his disciples were put out. And what they didn't know is that not only was she a woman who was a Samaritan, but she was a five-time married-before woman. And that's what ultimately makes this, this story more scandalous, is that she was a five-time married-before Samaritan woman. 
And contrary to what some may believe, divorces were somewhat rare in even Jesus' day. And when it came to divorce, there are no records in history of a woman putting away or divorcing her husband. Women had very little rights, if no rights at all, and so it was up to the man to put away the, put away the woman. And, and there was a situation in Jesus' ministry where they found, even in the Jewish faith, that if the wife burned the biscuits, the husband would divorce her because the biscuits were burned. And when he divorced her, she was used goods in that society. And I don't know how else to say it. In that society, when a man divorced a woman, she was left with only one or four options. Concubine, which is like a mistress, live-in mistress, which is apparently what this woman became. A slave, a prostitute, or a beggar. And so Jesus, in his own scandalous way, was talking to this five-time married before a woman. And we don't know if she was divorced five times. We don't know if maybe it was a combination of divorce or death. And scholars like to contemplate and think it through, and I think there's some value in that. But one thing is for certain, whether she was divorced five times, three of the five, or widowed three of the five, or two of the five, one thing is certain about this woman. Her heart is utterly wrecked and broken. Because, see, she goes to the well at noon. See, it was standard culture practice and common sense to go to the well at the cool of the day, not in the heat of the day. But if she were to go to the well in the cool of the day, then she would be forced to enjoy the the gossip party that would take place about her. Because she was a five-time married before woman who lived with someone who was not her husband. And even in that culture, that was still a no-no. And so why go to the well when all the other women are there just to have them look at you funny, just to have them talk about you, just to have them completely write you off? So just go to the well at noon so you can go by yourself and do what you need to do. So this was a woman whose heart was crumbled, whose past was shameful, and whose present was mundane and hopeless, and whose future was already determined by more hurt and more of the same. Because five times she gave her heart away just to have it handed right back to her. And culture had no sympathy For a woman like her. She was a woman with a life story in desperate need of a rewrite. A new ending. And frankly, in that culture, it seemed impossible. Until the day she met Jesus. See, because this story isn't about a Samaritan. It's not about a, a woman, though each play a significant part. This story is about Jesus. He is the central figure and the hero of the story. Because what you learn is that on his way, Samaria was not the most likely or convenient route for Jesus. He could have taken other roads to get to where he was going in a much quicker way. But Jesus chose to go out of his way, if the geography is correct, to find her, to meet her at the well that day. And when Jesus asked her for a drink of water, It shocked the Samaritan woman for obvious reasons. What she did not realize until later in the conversation is that when Jesus initiated the conversation and asked for a drink of water, what Jesus was doing was telling her, I know your life. I know your story. 
And yet I still love you. And for many of us, that can be lost on us because we sing songs like Jesus loves you and we talk about the love of God for us in Christ. But then we miss the way the story is supposed to be rewritten. So many of us come to know Jesus and we go on living the same story. It's like there's been no edit in our life. It's like there's been no rewrite in our life. And so this woman begins to engage Jesus in a theological treatise and discussion. And Jesus being the respectful, kind, loving God-man that he is, engages her on her level and entertains the conversation. You would think Jesus would just cut to the point. Cut to the chase, get to the sin, deliver the grace. But instead, what he did was he respected her. He valued her. And so it's no wonder that Jesus made a mark on the world by how he lived his life. And then Jesus says the craziest of things. Verse 23, he tells her that an hour is coming and is now here. Right now, he says, where the Father is seeking worshipers like her. See, no one is seeking this Samaritan woman. No one is out looking for her. They're just throwing her out the door. And what she hears when Jesus makes this statement is that she has never been lost on God. He has always been pursuing her. That's why he met her at the well that day. That does get her attention. So Jesus does the most absurd thing of all. See, this is the first time that we know of in the Gospels that Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah. And he doesn't reveal himself as Messiah to the scribe or to the Pharisee or to the politically savvy and the wealthy. He doesn't even present himself as the Messiah to a man. He presents himself as Messiah to the first, the first time to a woman and a Samaritan at that and a one who had been married five times. The, the profundity of that is often lost on us. That could it be that God wants to reveal himself so desperately and so deeply to all, regardless of where one has been? And one might even argue more so to those who have the most broken of hearts, which is why maybe the psalmist would say that God is near the brokenhearted, which is why maybe the Bible would say that the pure and undefiled religion is that we take care of widows and orphans, that, that God is always for the broken and the marginalized. And so he goes through and he proves this in Jesus, and he reveals himself as the Messiah. And when Jesus reveals himself as a Messiah to this broken, busted, used, shame-filled, mundane, hopeless woman, he is telling her, I know you best. I know your story. I know why you come to the well at 12 o'clock. I know you've been married five times. I know the pain that that causes. I know you're living with this man as a devalued human being. I know you best. But I love you most. And see, this changes this woman. Not only does she end up leaving her shame and her hurt and her pain at the well that day, she literally left her jar. 
Her reasons for going to the well were completely flipped upside down. She's just going about her life. It's noon. It's time. I better get to the well before the other women do. I got to draw the water because that's my job in this home if I want to have a home. And she's going about her life and Jesus meets her there. He goes to the well that day, not to draw water, but to draw out the beauty of her soul, to draw out the worth of who she is, to draw out the, 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 the healing from the hurt and, the, and the, the, the salvation from the shame. Jesus is drawing out the very essence of everything this woman was originally created to be because it was everything she had forgotten. And it was everything that the world was constantly reminding her that she wasn't. Jesus went to meet her at the well that day to draw, not water, but a new future for her. One that helped her understand what we still often forget in our culture. Or maybe we've just heard it too much that it lacks depth. But that Jesus still loves. Jesus still knows. See, every day, church, you and I get up and we go to the well. We go to draw our water. For some, it's new relationships. For some, it's education. For some, it's job where we're trying to draw money. For some, it's just we're trying to draw a marriage. We're trying to make our marriage work. We're trying to raise our kids. And we show up every day and we go to the well. And the tragedy for many of us is we go to the well and miss Jesus. And the other tragedy is we come to church and we hear songs that Jesus loves us and we sing about it. But the thing is, is we leave with no rewritten story. We leave as though we came. We leave the same way. When you look at this woman's story, when she met Jesus, her life changed. Because when you meet Jesus, your life is never the same. Don't get lost. Don't don't phase out. When you meet Jesus, your life is never the same when you meet Jesus. When you go to church, your life can be the same. When you grew up in it, your life could remain the same. When you read the Bible, your life could remain the same. It did for me. My life didn't change until I met Jesus. And for me, that was far after my baptism. And see, this woman... Jesus met her in her shame, and he met her in her pain, and he met her in her hope, and he met her in her mundaneness. And he met her in her sin. And when she entertained the presence of Jesus, when she simply re-engaged him back, he revealed to her, because her heart was open, that he was indeed the lover of her soul. And so this woman... In verse 39, I'm sorry, if you look at the text, it's actually verse 28. Not only leaves her jar, but she runs back to the very people she's been running from. She says, the woman left her water jar and went into town and told the men, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And so they left the town and made their way to him. And the result? Now many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of what the woman said when she testified, he told me everything I did. 
I mean, this woman who's trying to hide her story, who's going to the well at noon, who's so ashamed of who she is, who has allowed people to define who she is, her past, her present, has already defined her future, goes to the very people she's always been running from. It's like she just takes this new identity that she's been given and she no longer cares about what you think about her story anymore because she's heard from Jesus. She knows what he cares now. He knows what he has to say about her. And so it no longer matters what they have to say about me. And then not only that, just like Jesus took her sorrow and gave her joy. Because then she runs back to the town and she says, you guys got to meet this, this Messiah. He could be the man. He told me everything I ever did. And I'm sure that the men, when they heard this, thought to themselves, really? But they had to be a little bit perplexed that she even showed up to town. Because that's what Jesus does. When we meet Jesus, our life is not the same. And I will say this, and I say this with a slowness of heart and mind. If my life is not different, then I might not have actually met Jesus. If my priorities didn't change, If I still am lost in my shame and my guilt, then I haven't heard Jesus. Because there's something that Jesus wants to say today. He wants to say, I know you best. You cannot hide from me. You can hide them from your spouse, your fears and your insecurities. You can hide them from your boss. You can hide your secret sin and your secret shame. You can hide your insecurities. And you can put on the front that you're the strongest man or woman that has ever dawned the face of the earth. But Jesus is looking all of us in the eye and he's saying, I know you best. And despite all of that, I just want to tell you, Jesus says, I love you most. The question for you and me is, will we meet with Jesus? Because Jesus wants you to know that no matter where you've been, your story can be rewritten. No matter how mundane your life feels, Jesus can give you a rewritten story. He can rewrite the story that your children tell of you, even if the story that they tell of you now is not one you care to share. And you cannot do it on your own. Only Jesus can do that. No preacher, no pastor. No sermon, no praise. Only Jesus. No better job. No better situation. No safer environments. Only Jesus. Question for you and me is, will we meet him there at the well? Will we meet him? Will we look for him? And when he speaks, will we listen? So you may ask, how do I meet with him? I would guess the same way the woman at the well did. Believe that he is who he says he is. And believe what he says is true about you. Trust that he can rewrite your story. See, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul said that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. They have a new story. The old things are done away with because new things have come. See, today is a very simple message. 
And it's a very simple message that hangs on the very realistic truth that this 33-year-old Jesus of Nazareth, who the world would not maybe proclaim as Messiah, King, and Lord, changed the Western civilization more than any empire and more than any man. But then when we take a look at how he's changed the world just in his life, church, objectively, when we as his people see him as the king of kings, as the God-made flesh, as the one who is the Lord of lords and Messiah, then we have to step back, church. You have to step back this morning and say, if Jesus changed Western civilization all right, in 33 years, and yet they didn't believe him as God, but yet I believe him as God, how much more can he change me? He can change you because he will take what is in you Strip it away and replace it with his love. If you do not know Jesus, then you will leave at least knowing this. He knows you. He knows you best. And he loves you most. And he will pursue you. He will go out of his way. He will engage you in your mundane normalcy. So that one day, maybe just one day, you will be confronted with the reality that He is Messiah and choose. And His deepest desire, and He proved it on the cross, is that He desperately wants you to choose Him. Will you choose Him today?